Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Wilson, uh, right code, ML focused at Databricks, uh, ML flow maintainer. And today we are doing a panelist episode. So it's just going to be us two. And Ben and I were chatting actually yesterday about this very topic. And I'm excited to, to showcase it for everyone. This format will be per usual. I ask a bunch of dumb questions. Ben answers them in a thoughtful, concise, and wise manner. And <laughs> we'll just go from there. Sounds like I just got an instruction set. I will attempt to live up to your standards. Beautiful. That's all we ask. I may give some stupid answers, though. So just... We'll call them out. Don't worry. Good. So this is something that I have been struggling with for my entire career. And especially as I start managing people, it's something that I look to to develop. And that is essentially prioritizing and value scoping a given project. So we're going to treat this like a case study. I'm actually working on a project at Databricks uh, it's not cool enough where <laughs> I can't say all the details. So we should be able to actually look in or behind the curtain and see what's going on. Uh, so this project was born out of a need. And that need was often at Databricks in professional services, we go to customers and we're tasked with optimizing a compute resource for a given workflow or for a given SQL workload. So an example is we have a job that brings data from point A to point B or we have a set of queries that will be hitting an endpoint, and those queries should be roughly optimized based on a given endpoint. So that's a very common task, and I was working on this project for a large retail customer and got through a lot of the, the core data engineering improvements. But then I was like, all right, I need to try out 50 different cluster configurations, try out different worker types, um, I don't even know what a worker is, like what is going on? And so I thought about it and was like, well, maybe a computer can do this instead of me going and kicking off 50 different runs, looking at runtime and then doing a trade-off analysis. Maybe we can sort of treat this like hyperparameter tuning. So that's exactly what I built. The first step in this process is you go and look to minimize the search space. So you use subject matter expertise and you're like, all right, this is a compute-heavy workload. This is a storage-heavy workload that should determine your compute type. This is the amount of RAM that's required throughout the job just based on uh, logging metrics. So you can sort of narrow down the search base to a set of configurations. But let's say we're still in the 500 to 1,000 total Cartesian product of all of the possible configurations. And that's a lot to deal with. So the next step, just like in hyperparameter tuning, is you kick it over to an automated process Grid search, random search, hyperopt, you name it. All of these processes are way more efficient from my perspective than me just going on and kicking off these jobs. So that's what we've actually built. We have a sequential search algorithm that goes, spins up a given compute resource, does load testing against that provisioned resource, and then deletes it, and then iterates on to the next step. So that's the problem. Good so far, Ben? So <clears throat> that was a problem and a solution. Valid. <laughs> so, which is important to our discussion today, which is where do you start with something like this? And the first 
the first five sentences that you spoke was where you start is, hey, we have to go to customers and they ask, like, what size of clusters should we use or what types of clusters should we use? And you as a professional services uh, consultant are going in there saying, well, I don't know. It depends on your data. And what are you trying to do with your data? Can I look at one of your workloads? And then you go in there and you read through their code and you're like, ah, there's like 37 things wrong with how you're doing this. Let me rewrite this for you. And and then you do a benchmark and you look at it and yeah, it's time consuming. It's mind numbing and it's expensive if you're brute forcing this. So that's the problem. It's like, hey, I want to get more efficient at determining the most optimal run configuration for a job on our platform. And it's a great use case. When you're going into, immediately going from that into developing, you've already locked yourself into a particular solution. And you, you might have, you know, arrived at the correct solution by thinking through it and really analyzing stuff and writing some prototypes and, and testing it out. But that's not how software is built generally. That's how I've, I've built a lot of data science solutions in the past. It's like, it's very natural for data scientists to, to do that. I think most people that enter the profession were sort of genetically programmed to think that way. When we hear a problem, we start instantly thinking of, how would I solve this? I used to do that when I was, you know, many, many years ago. It's all I would do. And whenever somebody would start talking about a problem they have, like, how would I serve this, like, solve this with, with a SQL query? Or how will I solve this with a model? Or what would the tech stack look like? Or how would I serve something like this? And that's what my mind is doing while I'm sitting in a three-hour-long meeting wishing that I could go do something else, is trying to solve the problem in what I felt was the most optimal way problem, uh, possible. But software engineers don't think like that because uh, it's dangerous. You know, you can easily get yourself down into a rabbit hole of you're already committed to something, of a, a solution that is based upon, predicated by your own personal bias and assumptions of how to solve something. So we never do that. We, we do a, a design doc or like a product design doc where you're saying, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Define that and say, hey, I, I've gone out and I've talked to users. And for us, that's customers of us. You know, we talk to 40 different companies and say, are you struggling with this problem? You know, what makes this so painful for you right now? And you just listen. You write down everything that they say, not everything, but, you know, you write down the main points of what they're they're communicating as being pain points and then you spend a couple of days reading through that digesting it thinking through it and then you might meet with people on your team and say hey this is a big thing that people are talking about is it worth our time to work on this like what are what are our other priorities right now and then management will usually step in and say you know, look at the proposal and say hey, we have other things that are more pressing right now, so let's not do that. You just shelve it. You put it away and like, hey, we'll work on that maybe someday. Maybe we'll never work on it. It's fine. Uh, we're not emotionally invested in it because we haven't 
spent any time really figuring it out. We're just thinking through what are the options here? And then the other option from that is management saying, this is awesome. We're doing this right now. Go do your thing. And that go you do your thing is now you start prototypes where you say, hey, let's brainstorm. You know, usually it's whoever's assigned the project is going to do this brainstorming. But you're almost thinking of it as, you know, multiple people, you'd say. And that's at least that's how I do it. I, I think, OK, if I only had a week to do this, what would my implementation potentially be? And I think through, like, okay, what's the simplest thing that I could do? And I just write down what that would be. You know, maybe I'll do some pseudo code. These are all personal notes for myself. And then I'll, I'll go down and I'll say, okay, what if I built this and I had six weeks to work on this, but I only want to meet the minimum requirements? What would my implementation look like? <clears throat> maybe it looks the same as the first one. And then I know, okay, it's it's probably the direction I want to go, or it's like, okay, I would have, I would build these, uh, you know, eight additional features for solving this, and I wouldn't be able to do the long tail of other cool things that people were mentioning that they wanted. But six weeks would just consume like the top eight, right? And then I would ask, what would I do if I had five years to build this? What would this thing look like? And Got it. if I if I write down all of those components and how many features this thing would have and like exactly match everything. If I could get that done and it would take five years to build it, I, I start getting a little scared uh, about like, how much work this is going to be and like, is it really worth my time and, and energy to do that? So any of the, like between those three things, I start saying, okay, what are the minimum things that this thing needs to do? What are the most important things? Yeah. And then just identify those and list out what do we need, what would be cool to have, and what are we just not building? Okay, so in the pre-building step, let's uh, let's roll it back because you're right. I did jump right through the problem and went to the solution. Can you ask me some questions as if you were a manager that would help me scope whether this is valuable or not? I would say how... How long does it take you to do this manually when you get Ooh, to a new client? Good question. So typically there's sort of a calibration or exploration stage that's, uh, let's say, a couple of days. And often there's hiccups. And so you have to go back to the customer and say, what's going on here? Do I have the right access? Do it? Can I run this cluster myself? Can I edit it? So I would say typically about a week of total time but hands-on time anywhere from like eight to 16 hours. So that's the calibration step. And then for the optimization portion, it can be, it really is dependent on the complexity of the job and how much, how much structure there is to it. Uh, but let's call it another week for simplicity with an, let's say eight to 16 hours heads down work. And if, of the last 10 that you've done this at, how similar is that process? Oh, another good question. I think I see where that question is headed. Um, let's see. They are, they're essentially buckets. So depending upon the workload type, they're all pretty similar. So if it's a DB SQL workload, quite similar. 
if it's a workflow that's batch, very similar, and then I guess streaming workflows would be another one. So those are like some core groups. Okay. And when you're doing the manual optimization, you say it takes 16 hours. Is that per data set that you're doing or per ETL pipeline? Or is this in toto? Like, hey, a customer that might have 30 different workload types and potentially at 1,200 jobs that they're going to be running every day. Does that still take 16 hours to evaluate the groups of those type of jobs, or is it 16 hours per job type? So that's a really, really great point. The calibration set is typically one and done, or one and the rest are very efficient. Because often those workflows, if you're working on a single project, the workflows will be similar. The manual optimization step you can write a script similar to what I have that would kick off a job, get runtime SLAs, and then return them to the user, and then do that sort of in a loops fashion. Uh, so if you write code for that, it's pretty scalable. But if you're actually kicking them off manually, you just have like 15 tabs open corresponding to each job, and you press play as soon as one completes. So it's not very scalable, um, but it's also not incredibly time-consuming. It's more of the data-gathering data portion. And are you able to do all job types? So can you evaluate a machine learning training run on CPU? Or do, do customers ever ask for that? Like, hey, I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, spinning up too many workers that aren't going to really be utilized for this, you know, distributed XG boost implementation. I haven't been asked that, honestly. <clears throat> in your experience in the field, is that a common ask? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done that. Dozens and dozens of times. Got it. Cool, yeah, I, I haven't done that yet, but TBD. <laughs> and then the other question that I have follow-on from that is GPU instances. If you're like, hey, there's a scarcity right now with GPU instances in my region, I want to make sure that I'm using just the minimum required that I would need. Can we evaluate that and make sure that the sizing on that is appropriate for the volume of data and the algorithm type that we're using? Yes, so those, of all those things that we just listed, uh, my question would be, what is most important? Mm -hmm. Which type of workload is most critical for you to be able to say, hey, here's the config that's going to work for you for this job type at your company? Well, see, that's my thing. And that's what we were talking a little bit before the episode started, which is this project was born out of a personal problem. So it started with Databricks SQL workloads. And now I've been working on uh, batch workloads as well. But theoretically, other parts of the organization only do streaming workloads or only do ML workloads. So I don't really have a window into that. I'm just solving my own personal problem and a few and problems with like a few adjacent people. So how would I even go about thinking about that? Uh, don't make assumptions. You start asking people. Uh, when you're building something new that multiple people could potentially use, before you write your first line of code, after you've done your ideation, where you're like, hey, is this worth my time to build this? Like, I really hate doing this manually. And I've got eight buddies that have to do this at all of their their accounts. And they all complain about the same thing. You know within your, your circle of bias that everybody's complaining about this or just annoyed that they have to do this. Then if you want to expand that circle and make sure that you're not doing something in isolation 
and building something potentially that in order to make this useful for other people would require either a total code rewrite or the most extensive refactoring that you could ever imagine because you didn't explore that during the planning phase. And that's what's so important about design phase planning is thinking about that bigger picture and saying, hey, I don't know the answer to any of this stuff. And by the way, when we build new features, we don't know. We have no no clue about like how we have an assumption of how, like, for me, like, I can look back on my years as a data scientist when I'm building something, some new ML tooling, like, well, how would I use this? That's super dangerous if I was just like, I'm building this the way that I would want to use it because I'm not a user of that anymore. Like, I'll, the only time I'm using that is during testing. So it's important to go and talk to a bunch of people and be like, hey, here's what I'm thinking of these five options. Which of these makes the most sense to you? And then I'll go ask 30 other people and I'll just collate their answers and say, huh, uh, I would not have assumed this. I didn't think that 27 out of these people would choose option three. And it's important to present those options in a non-biased way. You don't talk about what the implementation details will be or how, how much of a pain in the ass it's going to be to build it. You just say, which of these features is most important or is this useful for you? And if you get everybody saying, like, yeah, I really, I want that and I will use that if it's built and I will tell you if it sucks or not, uh, then you know you're onto something. But it also means you go a little bit in more in depth. You talk to those ML people that are saying, like, yeah, I need to be able to scale, like, to know what the sizing is of a GPU cluster. And you now know that you, you don't necessarily have to support that on your first version. And that, that goes to the agile methodology later on with like MPPs and stuff. But it informs your, your architecture of implementation. You're like, hey, I know that in the future we might have to support this if this is successful. I'm not going to write the code in such a way that I'm, I'm making it super painful to build on this new functionality. And that comes with experience of, of developing stuff. And if you don't have that experience, you ask a mentor, you ask, you know, colleagues that have that experience and say, hey, am I thinking about this right? Like this design that I'm building. And if you get feedback from somebody who's super senior and they're like, nah, dude, like that's not really what you want to do. You might want to think about this instead. That's learning opportunity for you. And it's preparing that project in you know, nothing's perfectly future-proof, but it it makes it in such a way that you're not going to hate having to build new features onto it later on. Or do that super dangerous thing, which is, uh, you know, today I, I messed up when uh, implementing this and I got to go back and I'm going to open up this repo in one window and then I'm going to open up a brand new IDE project in another one and I'm going to use my old code as a reference while I'm rewriting everything from scratch. You never want to do that, uh, even though I have done that many times. Um, <laughs> Got it. Okay, I so done it in years, though. Well, that's good. 
improvements. <laughs> Uh, so in the value scoping stage, you suggest going and asking a lot of people. I'm going to be annoying. Yeah. How do you know your sample is A, representative, and B, of high quality? Representative? You don't. It's impossible. So your statistical sampling techniques are going to be highly dependent on an innate bias that's already going to exist in the pool of your population. So let's think about this if we we're sort of doing cold calling, sending out, like spamming out an email to, let's say we have a thousand users, potential users of our, our tool. Let's, let's, let's say we're building with, yeah. this together. Yeah. And you're like, hey, Ben, who should we ask? Uh, my first gut reaction uh, years ago would have been like, let's just send out an email. We'll ask everybody. Well, we're only going to get responses from people if we were to do that, which is like trying to do population sampling uh, of people who either like us personally, know us, uh, want to be helpful, or people that potentially want to be involved in the making of this thing. Uh, or you're going to have people who just really like to shit all over everybody's ideas and they're just going to be super negative, regardless of what idea you come up with. So you're going to get this bias that's based on the perceptions of that spam blasted email that goes out. And you're not generally going to get the best feedback from that. You could get some helpful stuff. But the only way to tell if on an individual basis of people that are responding in a helpful way, uh, if your idea is really good is if you were to ask that same one person some, and have them review some really terrible ideas that you know are terrible, that are just total garbage, and see what their response to that is. If their response is, oh man, this, this is a pretty good idea, then you're like, what are you doing, man? Like, we knew that this is bad, and you told me it was good. So you have some bias towards us, so it's not valid feedback. So... <clears throat> The important thing is to provide exposure to like your ideas in such a way that people can can contribute either anonymously or you know you don't you don't do that internally in a company you want to know who you can go talk to to follow up with but when you're trying to get feedback you you let everybody know that there there's this thing out there and you welcome the comments but the comments by commenting on a document they're not done in a vacuum, which changes people's, you know, it's like manipulating human responses. Right. There's a reason why this is done this way in software development and product management. Uh, <clears throat> if people know that other people are reading and like your boss is going to read your comments or your boss's boss is there making comments or reading stuff, people put breaks on their passionate responses. So the people that are there just to, to be negative, they're going to be very careful about what they're being negative about. And usually some of that commentary is going to be pretty useful. might not be valid, but at least if it's completely invalid, other people are going to shoot it down. You don't even have to worry about that. Somebody's going to like, correct that person and that person will self-correct. <clears throat> But if it's legit, like a bad idea, and they're just making a comment about how much of a bad idea it is, 
it makes you think about it. And if other people agree with that, you're like, okay, we're not doing that part of it. But the people that are overly positive, that are just there, just cheerleading you, like, hey, great job. This is awesome. Nobody cares. You might see a bunch of thumbs up and smiley faces and stuff on on your dock. That's good. Like, it, you know, people are, are providing feedback like that. But then you look at the number of counts. How many other people voted, like clicked on that and said, you know, like, oh, I have 37 thumbs up on this one part. And 100 people looked at the dock. People must really like that. So, you know. Got it. There's an evaluation that you do. But what you don't want to do is that, like, blast spam thing and just ask for people's one-on-one response through the impersonal interaction of, you know, email or Slack messages. <clears throat> you want to make sure it's a public forum. Got it. Yeah, so, so far in the project, I've taken a much more, well, I don't know what the word is, like precise approach where I go and ask people I trust and people I know will give good feedback. I go ask them for feedback. And I haven't done any sort of blast anything or even asked anybody that doesn't know who I am. Uh, frankly, because I didn't even think about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a really good point. And then once you sort of field all this data from a bunch of people, you can do a post-processing step and say, maybe this person is coming from a different uh, perspective and I should discount their advice. Or, um, But you sort of like filter it. Is that what you're saying? I don't try to disregard opinion, particularly negative ones. I use that as fuel to take a look at what I proposed from their perspective and try to, you know, be, play devil's advocate on my own work. Right. It's, that's okay. the most powerful feedback that you can have. There's nothing greater in the world of developing software than somebody just trashing your implementation. Just saying like, this sucks. You suck. You know, that's like fuel for the fire of making something forged into something better you know if somebody hates on what you're doing there's got to be something that's wrong with it and that's what you want to hear because you want to make it better you want to make right. it a better product so I, I don't really filter that out what i mostly filter out is are the thumbs up and the smiley faces it's nice i appreciate people doing stuff like that i do it to other people as well you know we praise people's designs and their clever thought processes and how thorough they are but nobody's looking at that and doing like damn i'm a genius i got this nailed nobody does that who's a professional software engineer who's serious you know some people do behave that way but uh nobody at our company that writes software does that i can confirm uh it's just a hey you know thanks for the well wishes appreciate it it's like a nice gesture among you know, colleagues and friends, but you don't take that as, man, I nailed this. Nothing can go wrong. People gave me thumbs up on my design. There's no guarantee there. So what you want to look for are the negative comments or people challenging what you're doing. You know, people making those comments to say, I don't know if this works or I don't think you're thinking this through correctly. It's not a personal attack. It's a way to make you get better at thinking through and planning these things so that when you implement it, you're going to be more successful. Right. But it seems like there's, 
Yeah, but it seems like there's a division here. Like, we want negative feedback on the design review, but we want positive feedback on the idea, right? Like, that what we're looking for is people saying, "Hey, we'll use this. We want this." That's that's would sort of kick off us actually designing. And oh yeah. This. And then once you go into the designing phase, you want people to tear it apart. Is that right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Got if it. if your main idea, if everybody just dunks on it. Got it. Go, go do something else. Yeah. Uh, so many people have wasted years of their lives writing software who aren't working as like a like within a, a software engineering organization or ML engineering organization. They just have this idea and they're like, hey, uh, this is going to be revolutionary. People are going to use this. It's going to be amazing. And if they had only shown that to people first, before they started building something and got some candid feedback. And, and if everybody had been like, what? Like, why would you build this? Like, it doesn't, like what you're trying to solve isn't even really an inconvenience. And maybe it's something that I like to do manually because it there's so many customizations that I have to do during these, these set of tasks. What we're talking about right now, the project that you're talking about is not that. Like, it is a good idea. Like, We've already crossed that threshold. This is worth going into a, a design document. Got it. Okay, cool. One more very annoying, very detail-oriented question. So when we're talking about this sort of value scoping, we go and ask a bunch of people. If people say they like it and they want it, we go and do a design doc and hopefully people tear that apart. That our will peers improve you. Yeah, are our not peers. our users. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but from the user's perspective, in this case, I am a primary user. I have a few colleagues who would also be primary users. And then there are adjacent use cases that I could see being expanded. For instance, if we're in pre-sales and we want to showcase the power of Databricks SQL, well, maybe we have some pre-sales people come in and say, we'll build out a prototype and then we'll use this open source load testing framework to show you how fast it is. So that's an additional use case, let's say. But let's just work on the compute optimization framework. When you reach out to the users, in this case, myself and colleagues, how do you ask if it's valuable? Because let's say I Slack and say, would this be cool? People will be like, yeah. Would you use this once a month? People might give me a more precise answer. Like, What is the Slack or the email words that you send to someone to determine if it's actually something worth pursuing? Because if they like the idea, that's not really relevant. If they'll use the idea, that's what's relevant. So how do you get signal out of that? Uh, I don't use Slack, uh, for one okay. thing. Um, if I have an idea of something new to build, I draft up a proposal that is open for commenting. And I'll send that out to a group of people, you know, via email, uh, people that I, I just want feedback <clears throat> on their perspective of the idea. And then schedule a meeting like a half an hour long meeting could be 15 minutes or it's just hey everybody if you're open and you're free and you want to discuss this let's meet at this time we'll go over the summary so you definitely need a tldr if it's going to be a complex topic where somebody's looking at a bulleted list of like hey we're trying to build this thing here's the things like here's the core features that we think that this needs you know any thoughts and you have this organic discussion where people are just 
free and comfortable to to make comments. And at the intro of that call, be very clear with people like, hey, I want you to tell me how dumb of an idea this is. You know, if that's if you're self-deprecating, you know, do something like that. Like, tell me how stupid I am. Like, and if if your ego can handle it, you know, approach it that way. Uh, if, If you are in a more formal environment and you can't really joke around with people that much, you know, present it as, hey, this is a problem that I've noticed. Here's the background, here's the synopsis of why we're talking about this. What are people's thoughts? And allow people to read it, you know, four or five days before you're going to have this meeting, maybe a week before, and then remind people like the day before, like, hey, if you haven't had a chance to look at this, please provide comments uh, in the doc, and then we can discuss. Before that meeting, summarize the comments for everybody. So if it's a huge doc and there's like 30 pages of text that you've written up about your idea, some pro tips on this, uh, no implementation details in that. No prototype code. It's irrelevant. You don't want to talk about, when you're talking about an idea to implement potentially, you don't want to bias people by or overwhelm them with like, oh, here's, here's an example class you know, with all these methods in it about how I'm going to build this. And, you know, any software engineer that sees that is like, dude, aren't you in the design phase? Like, you're not even in the design phase for implementation yet. This is just an idea. Like, why are you writing all this code? It's irrelevant. You know, you should be talking about what features this thing needs. So you just collect all of the comments on the ideas and put that as, as a top portion on the doc. And it's like, hey, here's the open discussion items that we want to talk about. So have an agenda for that meeting. Get through those lists as quickly as possible. Provide answers to them in the document as well. And then open it up for forum discussion. You know, if you go through the outstanding questions and then provide the answers at the beginning, it usually opens people up in that meeting to start saying like, well, I have a question too. Discuss it. And as somebody's discussing in the meeting, it's very important when you're driving that and you're sharing your screen that you're writing down what they asked and then writing down your answer so that people can see that you're super engaged with the conversation in that meeting. It, it right. just gives credibility to what you're doing. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so it seems like start off with value scoping, try to get a representative sample. Uh, and let's say people like it, people want the idea. You then go in and have a focused discussion with design docs with people who can give honest and valuable feedback. So, which are not your users. Which are not your users, yes. So you were talking about your peers being other people that do what you do. They're not going to be a reliable narrator for you, which is one of the reasons why when you're building, like when we're building tooling for like MLflow or building a new feature, we don't take a design doc and send it out to users and say, what do you guys think? Not only would we probably get just thousands of responses on that doc and it would be completely unable to be consumed, but it's not the feedback that we want on design. Like at all. We don't want users trying to influence, you know, implementation details. Right. And the design doc also is not the implementation details. It's talking about what features and what ways to go about 
implementing a feature, but not the actual implementation. That's left up to the person writing the code and the person who's reviewing the code. Right. So it's very important to, to separate that out. Uh, nobody wants to know if you're doing a depth first search implementation for traversing a, a graph. Like nobody cares. Right. You know, the person who's writing the code cares and the reviewers care. But that's that's past that phase. Got you it. just want to say, hey, we think this is an important feature. Here's four different ways that we could sort of implement that feature that would have these these the, this characteristic associated with it. Are we going to store data in a database? Are we going to store memory in a queue? Are we going to store it, you know, in in memory by using some sort of collection that is going to be, you know, mutable or something? Or are we going to write it to disk? Those would be four right. th different ways to store information for your run of evaluating these things. Um, how do we make sure that like, do we need to make sure that when we partially run a test that it's item potent? Like, right. does yeah. that have to be thought about? Yeah, you're segueing into a great point, which is sort of the third piece, which is how do you build out the MVP? So I've built out an MVP, and you've listed a bunch of requirements about areas that you should think about from a design perspective. But what does an MVP look like versus a prototype? Well, prototypes help you as the person drafting the design document to determine if you should even put that thing on the design doc. There are certain things that there's really only one way to solve. So anything like that, that just goes into the, into the hard requirements. Like, hey, this thing for, you know, this project that we're talking about, one of the must-haves is must have the ability to run a job on Spark. There's no True. other alternative there, right? So that would be a must-have. It would be a core feature. Another one would probably be must-have the ability to configure a cluster with dynamic properties. Another one would be must-have the ability to read from three different data types in order to execute this. Must be written in, or not written in, but must be able to execute within a Python notebook and a Scala notebook and a SQL notebook. Or you could say, hey, those would be nice to haves, but we must have evaluation of PySpark execution. That could be like the critical one. And then you could have a, a could have Scala, could have SQL, you know. Right. So you would do all of that, but then you in your design decisions, you would actually weigh the pros and cons of each of these things. Like, hey, wh what if we don't support you know, Scala? What if it's just Python and SQL? And you would say pros of that, cons of that. And you would go through m multiple different decisions that have an impact to inform what your your MVP is. But while yeah. you're doing all of that, you're you're writing prototype code that your prototype code might go into your design doc to illustrate to a reviewer what it is that you're talking about, particularly if it's an abstract concept where somebody's like, what are you talking about here? You want to do what? You want to use HyperOps or Optuna in order to do, you know, search space evaluation? Like, I thought that was an ML thing. And then you would write up, you would like do a prototype really quick showing that 
they wouldn't have to interface with actually executing, you know, a job. You could mock all of that up, but you want to write like, hey, here's a function that does exactly what I'm talking about. So a, right. a developer looks at it and they're like, oh, got it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Or, man, that's dumb. Why don't you just do this instead? And that's what the prototypes are for. But those those decisions that are made in that doc, which, by the way, you're providing recommendations on that. You listen to other people to determine what you're actually going to build. So if you say, hey, I think option two is the best here, you might get everybody saying, yeah, option two, good to go. Let's do that. Or you might get everybody but you saying, I think we should do option four here. Option two, while cool, is pretty complicated and I don't think we're going to be using that that much. And we don't build for cool. We build for utility. So that MVP is exactly what it stands for. The minimum viable product. What is the the smallest number of features that you can get away with releasing that fulfill those must-haves and nothing else? And you decide the must-haves from your design doc. Got it. Okay, so we're starting to build out a plan here. I like it. So we value scope, we do design docs, and one of the things that I've noticed is really effective is that must-have, nice-to-have, out-of-scope list. Once you have that... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, once you have that, you can then go on to actually building the MVP. And this is a tool or a, a... Yeah, I guess a tool is a good word. With all of the must-have features, none of the nice-to-have, and definitely not any of the out-of-scope features. Uh, I don't know, man. So your must-haves, you better build that. Unless in the process of implementation, you and your peers who are reviewing, or you and your tech lead or your manager, you come to a point where you're implementing something that you missed in your prototype. Where you're like, hey, I thought this is going to be easy. This sucks. Like, this is going to take me months to to implement because of some system complexity or architectural, you know, reason that building that feature is just, it's too expensive in time and resources. You can cross that off and be like, hey, we're just not supporting that because it's going to cost, you know, take too long. It's no longer a minimum feature unless that's the only feature and if that is the only feature it's time to have a discussion with people and say yeah we could do this but it's going to take you know nine months of effort i don't know if it's really worthwhile let's go do something else with our time right like that happens all the time by the way uh but you want to find out about that as early as possible and Hopefully you're you're doing those evaluations during that prototyping design doc phase. But sometimes some of the must-haves that somebody got, like didn't, during the design review, somebody who's super senior might say, no, 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 we, we really need that one feature that you said we probably shouldn't build. You should definitely build that. You get into implementation, you're like, yeah, this is taking way too long or this is really hard to do. We'll figure it out, but man, that's going to require, you know, 20,000 lines of code in 30 different modules and 40,000 lines of unit testing. And you just be like, 
we're punting on that. We're and you just tell the person who asked for it, be like, hey, this is scope creep, you know, by adding this in. You tell them what the situation is. And most people who come up with that are like, Yeah, don't do that. I I just thought that would be really neat, but if you're gonna take months to do that, like, nah, let's just scratch that off. Got it. But your your could haves, if in the process of implementing, if you realize that one of those could haves, its implementation is an additional three lines of code and maybe three more unit tests to validate that that's working and you have the time, why not? We do it all the time, like all the time. So that's what it could have is. What you should not do is something that you explicitly said is out of scope is like will not do uh, unless you have extra time to do it and it's actually something really valuable you know like hey i i thought this was going to take a week to do this this one feature i finished it in two hours so uh i'm done with all the other critical path things here i'm gonna go talk to some other people and say like do you think i should build one of these things that was out of scope and people are like yeah man do it build it yeah got it all right so this is super helpful let's bring it back to the project so where i'm at right now is i have that minimum viable product i have a tool that will allow users to input sql queries it will allow them to select a space of db sql warehouses then it will iteratively provision resources do load testing based on the queries provided collect slas and then it will delete the resource and essentially continue. And I'm like one step away from adding a sequential search algorithm, but let's say I, I've built that already. Now it's time for getting feedback. Can you put yourself in my shoes and ask me, a theoretical stakeholder, a theoretical user, what questions would be valuable uh, for you from a design and building perspective? I've never really done that. Um, uh, I've never asked people's opinion <clears throat> in the way where I'm saying like, hey, what did you think of the, like this feature in this this module? I'll talk with people about that if they approach me and they're like, hey, why did you build this this way? Um, answer their question and, and then I'll ask, like, why do you ask? And if they're like, hey, man, it sucks or it's broken or it just doesn't work the way that I, it's not intuitive. And I'll be like, Ooh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to create a Jira ticket for that. And I'm going to fix that whenever it gets approved for work on. Uh, cause I want to make that good. I want to make it, you know, fix it for that, that person. If it's, if I can reproduce it, of course. Uh, but if we're talking about, Hey, I want to solicit feedback from people. Um, there's ways to do that which is similar to the way we were talking about farming out the design doc where you say, Hey, could you anonymously rate this, this thing that we built? And there's scoring metric systems like NPS where you you get the feedback on product. Your mileage may vary on how useful that stuff is uh, because of the bias. You know, somebody might be, just dunking on your product because they hate your company or they hate you as a human being. It's super biased. And it's also their mood at the time or how frustrated they are with other things that have nothing to do with what you built. So 
I don't really listen to much of that stuff. What I do listen to and ignore is people saying how awesome it was. I don't care. Uh, if, if people are saying something is awesome, that means <clears throat> I didn't build garbage. It does not mean that I built something amazing. How do you know if you built something amazing? You don't. And you shouldn't care. You should be like, are you solving a problem? But I'm not in this job or this profession for personal gratification of like, oh my God, I am so good. People love what I do. I just don't operate like that. I don't know a lot of other like software people that do uh, operate like that. I know a lot of people that write code that operate like that, but it's different. Um, a lot of people who are like seriously writing software uh, you know, every single day and they're buried in IDEs and in, in Git constantly, nobody's building stuff for glory or for people to pat them on the back and say like, man, you're so smart. Because uh, the response you're going to get from somebody is like, no, I'm not. Like, I know all the stuff that I don't know. And they're like, no, no, you know so much about this language. I've seen your implementations. Like, yeah, the deeper that you get into building stuff, the more you realize how stupid you are. True. You're just like, dude, I have no idea how to do these things. Or I've never done this thing. Or I, you realize by nature of building things that the process of you implementing something requires original research so many times because it's there's going to be something you've never done before and you have to go and look at the docs and figure it out and write a bunch of garbage code that breaks and then work at it until it works correctly you just start getting so humble from that of like man i'm dumb and you're fine with that you know you know most professional engineers are like that you're just like i there's tons of stuff i don't know and there's tons of stuff that I'll never know, but I know how to learn it when I need it so that I now know that thing. And as time goes on, there's fewer things that you've done before that you have to go and look up again because you just you innately know those things because you've done it so many times. But there's never a time when you're like, kick back my feet. I'm, I know it all. If you ever meet somebody that's like a software engineer that, that acts like that, you just know they're full of shit because there's no way that anybody knows it all. Right. Um, okay. So it's important to stay humble while you're gathering this feedback, but I don't know how, how you can't. Yeah. Like, fair. After you've, after you've gone through the process of releasing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of features, that process is going to beat you down. It'll <laughs> beat your ego down. Excited. Because every PR that you file that's of sufficient complexity, people are tearing it apart because they want it to be better. They want you to be better. And that's why they give that feedback. Like, this is how you learn. This is how we get better together. And that's why it is a thing. But your psyche is going to adapt to that. Like, the human condition. We can adapt to almost anything. Um, you're going to start realizing that, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't take this so personally and Maybe I shouldn't do this to make myself feel smarter. You'll realize over time that you are getting better at your at your, yeah. your technique and how you're you're building stuff. But 
you shouldn't be looking for, for praise. What you should be looking out for is people trashing what you've done. That's the key. So you can get a bunch of flowery, like, oh my God, this is the best feature ever. This is so great. Chalk that up to, I didn't screw it up, at least. That's cool. Uh, on to the next thing. And that's kind of how I, I think about stuff. Uh, and most of my peers think about building stuff the same way. But when you get a bunch of negative feedback, people are like, this sucks. This is broken. It doesn't do what what we thought it was going to do. Hey, can you fix this? That's awesome feedback. I mean, if, if you're listening yeah. to that from like an applied software engineering perspective where you're like using tooling and you're building projects as like a data scientist or an ML engineer at a company, it's probably terrifying to think about that. Like, hey, we've released a project and everybody says it sucks. You're probably thinking like, are we all going to get fired? Or are they going to let me go next week? Like, I totally bombed this. But the experience people will realize that's good to get feedback about it being broken. It's software. We can fix it. You know, if you're, if you built it in the first place, you can probably figure out how to fix whatever's broken with it. But the fact that people are coming to you saying that they hate it means that they care about it. That it, huh. the idea, the product that you're trying to build is important. You might've screwed it up. The implementation might've sucked or <clears throat> you've, you chose the wrong set of features because we're, we're, we're all human. Like we make mistakes all the time. And there's no way that you can predict how everybody is going to want to use what you're building. But if, if everybody's like, yeah, it's cool, but I need it for, you know, we reverse back to the beginning of our discussion today. We were talking about, yeah, you're building some for, for Databricks SQL. What about those ML use cases? What if you release this thing? And then 30 people who do ML only stuff in the field hit you up and they're like, dude, this sucks. Why doesn't this support GPUs? Like, I, I need this for GPU support. You respond and be like, hey, thanks for the great idea. If you did your design properly, that was a, you know, could have or nice to have. And now you go back and you build a feature and then wait to see if people are like, awesome or this sucks. The thing that's the worst about releasing something and l having people know about it, if you get no feedback yeah. and you get, you, you set up instrumentation and, and make it so that people can, can, you can sort of see how many people are using your thing. Or if you're, if you're hosting it on some sort of public re repository, if it's in Python, you're going to PyPy and looking at download stats or you're on Java Maven and you're looking at at download stats there. If you see that nobody's really downloading it or they there's this huge spike of downloads at first and then they just logarithmic decay and nobody's really using it. Or <clears throat> if you're instrumenting your act the actual API usage and you just see that it's just a, a few people that, that are still using it and you don't hear anything from anybody, that means you built something dumb and nobody cares. All right, so that completely ruins the structure I was about to outline. I'm going to say it anyway, and I would love love for you to explain where I'm wrong. So you build this MVP, you go get feedback. There are three potential outcomes of said feedback. First is scrap the idea. 
And you should scrap the idea if people shit on your idea and shit on the implementation. Is that correct? No. When do you scrap? What are the rules for scrapping? When nobody's using it and nobody cares. If you get okay, no so nobody feedback, cares. If you get zero feedback, it's just crickets. And <clears throat> that means that you have tried to solve a problem that nobody wants solved. If okay. it's great, and, and if you get almost no feedback except a couple of like, hey, thanks for building this. This is cool. Um, and you're wondering, and you're like, hey, is it is it good and useful but not exciting? That's when you look at your stats. It's like, hey, I, I put this on PyPy. Are people even downloading this thing? And you look at the download stats and like, I don't hear anything about it. There's no issues on the GitHub repo. Right. But there's 1,700 downloads a day. And when we released it, there was, there was 10 downloads a day. So people must find this thing useful. Right. Cool. You know, wait to hear if people complain about something. And then if they do, implement those features. But if you, or if you hear just massive praise over time and people referencing it and saying like, this tool is super awesome and, you know, it saves me so much time. Awesome. Go contact those people and, and make them tell you how much it sucks. Got it. Like, hey, what, what would you add to this to make it better? And that gives you your feature list of, of new things to build. You know, listen to their feedback and tell them to be as brutally honest as possible. Got it. All right, so let me try restructuring that. So option one is scrap it. If you get crickets, you should probably scrap it. But also you should maybe package it up and make it nice if you get crickets because people like it and there's no edit requests. How do you differentiate? Well, when you say package it up, that is MVP. Fair, so if, okay. you're, if you're delivering a tool for people to use, like the world at large, <clears throat> or if it's an internal tool for your company, uh, it's got to live somewhere. It's not an MVP if you're telling pe people like, uh, what I call it is a, a GSD deployment, get shit done deployment, which is like, hey, it's a script. People know how to download it from GitHub, like our internal repo. And it just does this one thing and it does this one thing, like hopefully pretty well. Uh, we're not talking about GSD product here. Like that's not what this is. This is a library uh, that people are going to install in a runtime environment and they're going to execute, uh, you know, again, some config, but hopefully it's an actual API that gets built that they can configure and, and execute and see what the results are. So you should have that somewhere that people can download it and you're going to have download stats associated with it. I see. Okay, I'm crystal clear now. So there are two options, not three options. First option is stop working on it. And that can mean never think about it again or put it on your resume and admire it. And the other option is to have changes or additional features. And that's where the negative feedback is really valuable because it will give you direction. Is that actually what, what the two outcomes of feedback should be? Yeah, and it's not related. It's not relegated just to a project, by the way. So. This can be a part, this could be a feature that's part of a much larger project. So if we're talking about building this thing and we get a bunch of negative feedback, which we probably would if we built this, by the way, which is good. 
it just lets us know like, hey, we got to build these seven features. Like people were really asking for this. Uh, implement all that stuff and we're hosting it. We see all this stuff out there. When people give those feedback and we're talking about a new feature that we're going to build to solve somebody's complaints, that feature is held to that same standard. So if you build this new thing that three people were really vocal about and you look on the issues board and nobody is saying anything about it, then try to determine, ask some people be like, hey, do you want us to build more things on top of this? And if it's crickets and nobody cares, flag that for, if you've ever played around with an open source package and you've seen deprecation warnings, there's two different types of deprecation warnings. One is, we're changing this API in a future major release. And hopefully they're telling you which major release that's going to be uh, and how far off that's going to be. Uh, that's a positive deprecation. That just means they're fixing tech debt and making things better for the future for maintenance. The other deprecation warning is we built something stupid. We're, we're going to remove it. And if you're using it right now, sorry, uh, but you're in the extreme minority and nobody else cares. And we are tired of running tests against this, tired of fixing it if it breaks, and tired of looking at it in our code base. So features can, can do that as well. Got you it. can't just do that arbitrarily, though, unless you mark it as like experimental or you, know, you mark it as, hey, this is a developer API. We can remove this whenever we want. So don't rely on this. All right. This has been immensely helpful. I will wrap my understanding. If there's anything wrong, please let me know along the way. So today we talked about how to scope the value of a project and go from ideation all the way down to the MVP feedback iteration. So first, when you're scoping, you should ask a lot of people and try to figure out what are the most valuable areas to solve. What are their pain points? And spend time during this process to sort of sit and marinate in these ideas. How do you get a representative sample? You don't. Sorry, just do your best. Um, and then for asking for accurate feedback, Ben has found that historically drafting up a, a well-structured proposal doc and then scheduling a brainstorming session with relevant stakeholders, and these are users, uh, with relevant stakeholders and looking for feedback, that has been effective. And including a TLDR is a nice little pro tip. Once you have validated this idea, you should go into the design doc. And this is essentially just a list of features. Maybe it has some implementation details, but it's no code. Uh, maybe you've included prototypes to see if a feature is possible to build, but there's no actual source code that would be in, used in an MVP. And the core deliverable of this is a list of must-haves, nice-to-haves, and out-of-scope features. And it's important to note that you should not include your users in this step. It should be third-party, unbiased, smart people. Next, we build out an MVP, and this is actually a fully functional version with the must-haves ideally built in, and maybe some nice-to-haves. And uh, this should be well-packaged so that you could sort of send it to someone with very little instruction, and they can run it and understand what's going on relatively quickly. And then finally, once that MVP is out in the world, you should do a similar process to your design doc where you put together this MVP, send it out to people, and then have a meeting where you get sort of uh, feedback or even you can do an anonymous feedback form. But a core thing is ignore the positive feedback because it doesn't matter. Is that about right, Ben? Yeah, totally. Cool. 
All right. Well, this is helpful. I know what I'm doing for the next two weeks on DBC Go Optimizer, and we'll see where it goes. But until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. Take it easy.